Will artificial intelligence kill our jobs? Will it be a non-issue? When it comes to how AI and automation will impact the future of work, theories by tech leaders like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are all over the map. Facebook Zuckerberg says we should welcome all tech advances with open arms, while Tesla's Musk actually thinks we should be afraid of the robots taking over everything, not just our jobs. As these two tech titans wrestle with this question, what's certain is that AI is here. It's a reality. So what's really going on? Will tech advances destroy more jobs than they can ever create? This is Work in Progress. Keeping an American business alive, it's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. I don't think there's a fundamental shift that's preventing this American dream from being available to everyone. It certainly is a different America. There's opportunities here that are untapped. You have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to LinkedIn's Work in Progress, a podcast on the future of the world of work. I'm your host, Senior Editor Caroline Fairchild, covering tech and startups for LinkedIn. And I'm LinkedIn Managing Editor Chip Cutter. I'm heading up a year-long reporting effort for LinkedIn, where I'm traveling across the country to talk to people about what it means to earn a living now. This week, Chip and I are attempting to get out of the theoretical and into the practical when it comes to how the next tech revolution will really impact the working world. Recently, tech titans Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg sparred over this very topic, with Zuckerberg, Facebook's CEO, calling out Musk's apocalyptic approach to the topic. With AI especially, I'm really optimistic. And I think that people who are naysayers and and kind of try to drum up these doomsday scenarios... I don't understand it. I think it's, it's, it's really um, negative. And, and in some ways, I actually think it's, it's pretty irresponsible. And in that exchange, Musk responded by saying he didn't think Zuckerberg had a good grasp, which is frightening given all the work that Facebook is doing now in the realm of AI. This whole debate made Chip and I wonder how the theories around what automation and AI will mean for the working world can still be all over the place at this point. And if you think if anybody had a solid idea of what this technology means, it would be these leaders in Silicon Valley. But you can see that even they're conflicted. Meanwhile, when I talk to workers around the country, oftentimes they tell me that this topic isn't even on their radar. Yeah, Chip, I was going to say, we might spend all this time thinking about the issue, but we can't lose sight that this really isn't something that most workers are discussing around the water cooler. That's right. They really aren't talking about this. I spoke with Christian Escalon. He's a 49-year-old journeyman electrician in Jacksonville, Florida. He has gotten about five years of training to do what he does now, which is helping to wire buildings and get them on the grid. And he says that he really worries that he feels that there aren't enough people like him, enough people in the construction industry talking about what automation might mean for the future of their careers. I'm not sure that I look at so much with fear, but I think almost a, an inevitability. It concerns me that we, we aren't talking about what happens with workers when the workplace is automated. What options are being made available to keep people gainfully employed? He says he believes that the threat is real, and he's unsure of exactly how it's going to play out. But he thinks that as you see these innovations happening right now of prefab construction and buildings going up much quicker than they have in the past, he thinks people need to be addressing this. So we have workers around the country who are saying we aren't talking about this enough. And then we have some of the most powerful leaders in tech disagreeing about what exactly it is we should be talking about. What's really going on? Our next guest is never shy in sharing his opinion and brings a different perspective to this topic entirely. Aaron Levy, the CEO and co-founder of file sharing service Box, joins us to explain why he thinks tech will create more jobs than they will ever destroy. 
Aaron, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to Work in Progress. Uh, Thank you for having me. We are in Redwood City right now at your HQ. Yes. So the last time that we chatted, we I was actually on a panel at the Milken Conference in April. Yep. And to kick off the discussion, I asked everyone to tell me the one thing that they know for sure about the world of work in 10 years. You said that people will be spending much less time doing things that computers can do better. Right. And more time doing the things that humans uniquely can do. Groundbreaking uh, insight for me. It was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But, you know, words aside, what did you you mean by that? There is so much human ingenuity and time that gets wasted because of inefficiencies in our sort of systems broadly. So if you think about the healthcare system, if you think about most knowledge workers, if you think about uh, you know construction, uh, there's so much time wasted where we're just trying to access information, we're trying to make better decisions, we're trying to communicate and collaborate with other people that we need to work with to be able to make a decision. The time that's wasted in, in sort of you know classic knowledge work of just getting everybody on the same page, finding times to do meetings, all of these things where Computers are actually way better at uh, at either giving us uh, the answer or a solution or a hint to the solution with with some degree of confidence or being able to connect the dots between people and data and silos of information. Those are the kinds of things that we think that computers are going to be able to aid in in the future, which will mean not necessarily that we're doing less work. I don't know that that necessarily changes because I think capitalism sort of forces us to still you know, want to be competitive and be able to, to, to uh, have as much time as, as possible going toward kind of creating value. But what I think will happen is we'll be doing more fulfilling work. We'll be doing more of the work that we will be doing is unique to our skills and unique to what humans are going to be exceptional at and less uh, uh, doing work that a computer is just way better at, whether that's research or pulling together data or, again, helping you know connect the dots between people and systems and silos and organizations. All right. I was going to say, you are pretty optimistic. Yeah. There's a lot of doom and gloom about this <laughs> subject right now. And I'm not entering in the uh, into the Zuckerberg versus Musk uh, field. You took the question yeah, right that, out, of, out of my mouth. I'm sorry. Too dangerous. Way too dangerous. <laughs> See, whose bad side do you want to be on? I don't know. So... I think each have points that make sense and that warrant us spending a lot more time on these issues. And I think there are kind of catastrophic and existential questions that AI could lead to, especially when you start to apply you know, AI to some of the more destructive things that one could do with technology. And then there's some of the more optimistic things that I'm assuming you know, Zuck is thinking about, which is you know, what if we could actually deliver better healthcare, better education, better medicine all around the world, better financial services. In those areas, it both creates a lot of opportunity and better products for consumers and in many cases, more jobs. So I really think there's two ways to cut this, the, the conversation. Where are the jobs going to be created? You've talked in the past about how the, we know that the jobs are going to shift. Yeah. Where are they going to go? Yeah, I think that from the limited study that I've done on this in prior technological revolutions, so when you know we first had the, the mainframe computers that emerged in the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, in even prior to that, some of the earlier forms of technology that we were worried about driving out work, I think what we tend to see happen is way more of an augmenting of what humans are able to do as opposed to replacing what humans do in some particular kind of segment of work. And that augmenting just means that the individuals involved in that work become hopefully vastly more productive, more efficient. And there's sort of two cases that that can lead to. In a case where you have complete saturation of a product, then that will likely mean in a reduction in sort of the workforce necessary to deliver that product. And that's where I think most of our mind goes to is we think that we have a saturated sort of product or service, automation comes in and thus reduces the jobs that are needed for that segment. 
conversely, what, what I think we found it so many times uh, over and over again as a technology enters a market is actually that that product or service wasn't saturated. It was just reaching the, the point where at its level of efficiency, the market was consuming some level of service. And when it became way more efficient, consumers adopted that product or service way more. And, and by consumers, I don't necessarily mean people, but other businesses. So in the case of, and I have no data on this, but in the case of even the self-driving truck example, if you could make the logistics network and, and fabric in America vastly more efficient, uh, because it was, you know, everything was on electric, it was self-driving. And so people operators were much more for an added safety element and much more of the management of the logistics. What might happen if we, uh, if we, you know, actually built more things in America and shipped them throughout America because that was actually a cheaper way to deliver goods and services in America as opposed to maybe having them built in some other country and then it's sent over over cargo ships. So we, we don't necessarily know what, what will happen when you actually bring better levels of productivity and efficiency to, to certain parts of the market. Now, the challenge, of course, is that if you're in one of these directly impacted jobs, so if you're the travel agent of the 90s, you know, whatever that ends up being in 2017 or 2020 or 2025, then the question is, can we transition that labor pool fast enough to a new set of jobs? And I think that that's going to be really requiring public and private partnership. That's going to require some level of retraining and being able to introduce what those new skills are. And you mentioned self-driving trucks. And I spent some time recently in Oklahoma City, and I hung out for a couple of hours at a truck stop there. And I talked to someone, his name's J.D. Mathis. He's a 34-year-old truck driver. He lives in the Tex-Arcana region. He lives in the Arkansas side of the Texas-Arkansas border. And he told me that I asked him just about automation. Like a lot of people that I talked to, he had very specific reasons why he didn't think it would ever affect his career. Like this is going to be a case where you can still do this ten years from now. Yeah, you think because you'll still... you got the road changes, um, especially like just just getting your map updated. You're you're going through like a middle of a damn cornfield on your GPS. It's a good interstate. Your GPS can sound say shit. <laughs> so he went on to say in more detail that basically he'd be in the middle of somewhere where there'd be no, you know, he's just in the middle of a big right. field and his GPS would just cut out. And, you yep. know, if he wasn't there driving, it'd be a big issue. I'm curious, though, in your kind of world that we're talking about where AI maybe does have a bigger effect on transportation, on trucking jobs, what should people like JD, what should they be thinking about now? How will that kind of job transform and how should they prepare for it? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a pretty weighty question. I'm not in the self-driving car space, so I don't know the pace of uh, advancement in that specific scenario. But what I would say is, I do think it's going to be a considerable amount of time before you actually get rid of the, the human overseeing the self-driving vehicle, whatever that ends up being. And so in, in his case, there's some fringe area that he has to drive through that AI is not yet prepared to be able to support, I think sounds incredibly practical for the foreseeable future. And so I think where the the biggest payoff for uh, self-driving vehicles, whether that's in uh, taxis or fleets uh, of trucks, is probably in things like uh, efficiency, quality, um, you know, reducing slash completely eliminating accidents, you know, any kind of fatigue that a driver might have that can increase the odds of that accident occurring. I mean, that's where you're going to see the immediate benefit. And so if you think about all of the cost that gets reduced out of the system, and thus the efficiency that gets afforded for any kind of trucking company, that might not necessarily mean that they go and reduce the workforce that is actually overseeing those trucks. But instead, they're, they're actually either making more money or they're able to put more trucks on the road. And I think we can agree on that. But in the interim, obviously, there's going to have to be some work to make sure that folks like JD yep. have the skills that they need to be able to do the jobs that are going to change, yep. as you said. Yep. 
in the past, you've talked about how the private sector has some responsibility to help with that. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you think the private sector can do to bring yep. the workforce up to speed? Yeah, I think there's a few different things. The, the first thing that I lament and, and that we contribute to, so, so don't want to be hip- hypocritical, but I do think that we have concentrated a significant portion of these sort of future jobs in a small set of regions uh, throughout the country. And this is one of those private-public partnerships that kind of needs to occur, which is Silicon Valley or New York or Boston or Austin. Uh, You have these major hubs where you're going to see these large bodies of future work emerge, but it's not efficiently distributed and uniformly distributed throughout the country. And I think that that's a big challenge where we are going to have millions and millions of more jobs, not necessarily jobs that are just, you know, coding software, but all of the ancillary, you know, jobs that get created because of these modern businesses and platforms. And we have overly concentrated them in, in a few locations. And so I think you need more partnership to create a bit more of a dispersion of these companies or of locations that our companies build offices in. I think that's one. I think that we need to have the largest employers in the country be doing more to either provide retraining uh, support for their employees or access to whatever these uh, sort of next set of jobs are that might be likely based on the skill set of an individual. I think we need to have certainly more advanced education and postgraduate education or you know everything from junior colleges to adult education that probably needs to make sure that the curriculum is aligned to where we think a number of these future jobs are going to be. And so we need the universities, we need the private sector, and we need public and private partnership to be able to try and smooth that transition process that we're going to see. And you mentioned employer-based education. Talk to me about what's going on here at Box. Is there a job or a skill that you hired for five years ago that you won't be hiring for in five years? And what are you doing to kind of get your employees up to speed? Yeah, so we're not the best case study on this front because most of our jobs are relatively net new, even in the past kind of five or 10 years. So, you know, the average engineer here is working on technology in various languages that didn't exist just a couple of years ago. We introduce our own form of automation in parts of the business as well. We try and make things like our customer service and customer support talent much more efficient by being able to have better data and better tools around how they can work with and engage with customers. But again, it's at least how we feel the optimistic approach uh, can play out, which is all of those tools we don't think about as allowing us to reduce our headcount. We think about them as uh, better ways to serve our customer more efficiently so customers can spend less time trying to re-explain something to one of our customer success managers uh, or talking to a sales rep because the sales rep or the the customer success manager has all of the information at their disposal instantaneously to make the right decision for that customer. So we think it, it just improves the customer experience and it makes our employees more productive so they can be able to work with more customers and that will let us grow faster, which means that we can go and hire more people. So we're, we're still at the stage of the growth curve where we're not seeing that, that you know, sort of retraining effort need to play out. What you're talking about is really automation assisting current jobs, yes. not replacing Correct. current jobs. But that's still a pretty rosy view of what could happen. Absolutely. And <laughs> tech companies in general continue to hire fewer people than the largest companies from the Industrial Revolution, for yep. example. So moving forward, if tech companies are the giants and they're hiring a tenth of the people that, say, yeah. the automakers or yeah. the oil and gas producers did 100 years ago, and the population is growing, this is still a numbers game, even if, like you said, the tech companies are going to grow and hire more people. Yeah, I would argue the tech companies, though, aren't doing or building or creating the services that the traditional industrial companies build or create. So I don't think about it as sort of tech companies 
the way that we've structured our tech organizations are the exact model for how every industry is going to play out. I think every industry is going to be tech-enabled. So every industry at its core is going to have technology powering fundamentally the core services uh, that they're creating. But I don't believe that we should look at Google and take its market cap and the amount of employees they have by market cap and just sort of apply that to the rest of the economy. I think some companies are going to be insanely efficient at what they do because it's an information-based business. And then companies that are still going to be feeding us and doing medical discoveries and delivering healthcare and delivering daycare and education and all of the sort of more professional services or human-to-human services, that is not going to become any more efficient uh, in terms of the amount of people that, that we're going to you know, throw out these problems. In fact, if anything, it might become more personalized and thus require more people uh, right. to be able to help. It still takes the same amount of people more or less, I don't know the specifics, to build a building as it did 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. We can maybe do it faster and more efficiently and with better quality, but that's still going to employ millions and millions of people globally. Sure. Yeah. And you mentioned how technology is really enabling people to lead better lives and do work that only uniquely humans can do. But I wanted to speak with some people who are actually creating these technologies. So I spoke with Tracy Young. She's a CEO of PlanGrid. I know that Box is familiar with PlanGrid and an investor. Yep. Uh, So this startup basically creates software that allows construction workers to digitize their blueprints. So rather than lugging around thousands of pieces of paper, they can just have an iPad and easily update changes. And I asked her why she started the company, and this is what she had to say. Construction is one of these few industries that hasn't seen an increase in labor productivity over the last 60 years. If you look at everyone else, by and large, everyone has seen like almost 150%, 200% increase in labor productivity in the last two, in the last 20 years, let alone the last 60 years. We believe that one of the reasons for this is when we ask the question of like, how did the rest of the world become more productive? And it sure looks like in the 80s, there's this massive spike because the IBM personal computer hits mainstream and it was certainly wildly adopted in the enterprise. People were using spreadsheets. They started digitizing all their workflows and all their information. But this benefit didn't impact construction. People in the field are on their feet out on a job site without electricity sometimes. 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And so it wasn't until very recently that they could even bring computing power out to the field. So is that kind of what you're talking about, about how tech creates jobs that are more meaningful? I don't know enough about being a construction worker to, 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 uh, to, to figure out what the major pain points are, but I'm very familiar with PlanGrid. And uh, I know that the, the problem that they're going after is all of the inefficiency of getting the most current version of your blueprints and your construction designs and all of the information surrounding a construction project. So when you think about the tens of hours or hundreds of hours that a construction worker is you know, likely going to spend trying to get access to just the latest blueprints and plans on the construction site they're on, Plan Grip makes that instantaneous effectively. So you can spend more time doing the things that, again, the human in that case is going to be better equipped to be able to go solve, as opposed to going back and forth from your trailer to get the latest prints. And then somebody makes an edit to the blueprint, and then they have to go print out a new version from the printer. And so that takes another day of turnaround time. So all of that being able to have completely uniform and instant access to information across every person on a construction site is pretty powerful. And that's the kind of efficiency that then you can deliver, which hopefully means that the construction project either costs less money or takes less time, which means that we can now go and deliver uh, more and more services. 
So Aaron, as part of this project, one thing that we're doing too is talking to people about really kind of the state of the American dream, how, whether it still feels alive. And and talking to a, a lot of people, we just keep hearing over and over again that it feels that it's fading away. I'm curious to get your take on that. I mean, do you feel like the American dream is still there? Does it still feel like it's possible for the country? Well, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, so I would definitely say yes. I think that we've probably seen disparities in who can access the American dream. And so I think there is multiple levels of access to the dream and there are multiple points of friction that people deal with, you know, where they grew up, what kind of education they received, maybe what kind of culture they come from, and, and if they're limiters that society is putting on them. And so I don't believe we probably have ever had, uh, certainly have ever had complete uniform access to the, the American dream. I mean, I, for instance, got incredibly lucky that I grew up in a suburban area that had technology deep in our community because I grew up around Microsoft. And so that's a very different experience than growing up you know, some of the other places around the country. So I think what we need to do as a country is provide better, broader, more distributed access to the American dream. And that is probably going to show up in education. It's going to show up in healthcare. It's going to show up in access to great jobs. And we certainly have a lot of work to do to be able to get there. But I'm super optimistic. I don't think there's any sort of fundamental shift that has happened in our economy other than the fact that tech companies will obviously continue to grow. I don't think there's a fundamental shift that's preventing this American dream from being available to everyone if we can get rid of some of these core systemic many times social issues that we have in the country. You mentioned education. Do you think that we're going to be in a future where employer-based education is going to be more important to fix this problem? Orkers playing on the job? Or does higher education really have to revamp itself to be able to support this? I think all forms of education have to revamp. I do believe everyone, no matter where you grow up, should have access to computer programming education and curriculum. And that's a travesty that that's not the case at the moment. And I benefited from the fact that, that I grew up in an area where, you know, in eighth grade or ninth grade, we could take computer programming courses. And that set me off with a much better advantage than if I had grown up maybe even 10 miles away. And then employers have to figure out a better way to, um, especially if you're a larger employer and a larger employer of a very diverse group of workers in terms of certain technical literacies or whatever. And I do think that companies should take a responsibility. It makes their organization better when they're able to recruit from within and they can build their own talent. And it also helps support the broader kind of community when they can be educating you know, employees on sort of these future of work or future job sectors. But education is going to be pretty fundamental to all of this. Thanks so much for joining us, Aaron. This has been a great conversation. Appreciate it. That was Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box, talking optimistically about the future of work, saying that it's going to be this smart combination of tech and human brain power. The jobs aren't going away, according to Aaron. There's going to be more jobs, and they're going to be better jobs, tech-assisted jobs. That's certainly different than the prevailing wisdom that we're hearing from so many other leaders that suggests that automation will kill jobs and lead to higher unemployment. But it really seems to line up with what I'm hearing from employers across the country, too. I talked with Dave Husted. He's the senior vice president of HR at a building products company called MD. It's based in Oklahoma City. They work a lot with aluminum. They produce all kinds of sheeting and different aluminum products. And the company employs 550 and brings in about $200 million in revenue. But it's already automating some of its work. And obviously, the war on talent or war for talent can be fought on a number of different fronts. And one of those is to reduce your reliance on talent coming out of the market. And, you know, obviously the way to do that is by automating processes and and just reducing your need to have 
an individual there in that process. You know, some people think you automate and you lose jobs. It doesn't happen like that because it doesn't happen overnight. You're working on how to automate at the same time that you've still got turnover happening. In many cases, you automate something, you are teaching that employee who is there a greater skill in how to manage that level of automation, and you're simply not having to fill uh, another one of your currently open positions. Dave gave me one example from the company's packaging line. This used to be a five-person job where you take a product, you'd wrap it in film, you'd get it in a box, and then you put it on a pallet so that it could be shipped somewhere. But the company's internal engineering team found a way to automate it, creating a conveyor system that now just requires two people. They supervise the work. It's a higher skill job, but it's half of the employees that used to be necessary. And he told me that this kind of ethos is going to apply as the company expands and keeps growing over the next couple of years. I'd rather go from 550 manual workers in a $200 million company to double that to a $400 million company and automate at the same time. You're still going to grow your employee base to 700 or whatever the number is. You're still going to provide employment opportunities, but at a greater skill set, at a greater rate of pay, hopefully providing you know, long-term careers for people. So I asked if that math was right. If the company doubles in size, shouldn't the number of employees do the same? It is right, and I think sometimes people look at the math a little bit funny, and they say you're a $200 million company employing 500 people. If you're a $400 million company, you should employ 1,000 people, and anything short of that is costing people their jobs, and, and that's coming at it you know, kind of backwards and from the wrong angle. You know, certainly it'd be nice to be able to have a one-for-one ratio like that just in terms of opportunity for the, the job-seeking public, but in a fully employed environment like that, it just doesn't work like that. We'll provide better opportunities for more people, maybe not as many as the math might suggest, but certainly for more people. So if we subscribe to what Dave, Tracy, Aaron, all of our guests this week have told us about the future of jobs, we're not going to have as many jobs, but the jobs that are around are going to be better, and they're probably going to pay you more. It makes us think that AI, automation, all these big unknown looming forces, they're going to change business, but perhaps not the way that everyone's expecting. Thank you for listening. If you like what you are hearing, please feel free to rate and review our show on iTunes. It really helps get the word out. Also, we'd love for you to share your thoughts on the podcast and the issues we discussed on LinkedIn today using hashtag work in progress. You can find me on LinkedIn at Caroline Fairchild and Twitter at CFair1. And to follow Chip Cutter in his travels, follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter as well at Chip Cutter. This week's show is produced by Florencia Ariando and David Pond. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>